I have a question for you. Oh dear. Are you becoming northern? Northern? Y- yes. Air up, duck. Yeah, I think so. Y- do you agree you are becoming northern? Do you mean Midlandy? Because uh, we don't live north, do we? We live in the Midlands. Well, so is that what you mean? Okay, so I guess what? for the purposes of anyone listening in Newcastle and Carlisle, yes, I do mean the Midlands. Uh, but otherwise, I do mean Northern because so for those of you unfamiliar with the cultural structuring of Northern and Southern in the United Kingdom, there is basically something called the Watford Gap, which is not to be confused with the Wat- place Watford. Yeah, in which is in London, which is in a Greater London. North, Northwest, West, yeah. yeah. Um, no, so just past Luton and I want to say Bedford and... It's the services on it, the M1. Yeah, it's near Milton Keynes. There's a place called the Watford Gap. So anything... It's, it's huge and it's, it's like services on both sides with a big bridge over the top of it. Yeah, anything past that is up north. And anything not past that is not up north. Right? Yeah, that, it's not south, it's not up north. Yeah, yeah you're right. Yeah. That is the difference, basically. <laughs> yeah, specifically, there is no south, really. You're no. not southern no. in the United Kingdom. No. You're just not northern. Not nor- <laughs> yes. But you went to London. I did. Last week. Yeah, I did. On your own for an outing. Yeah. And you came back to me and you to said... To meet a friend, yeah. Yeah, you said, everyone's so polite up here. Yeah, I went to London and everyone was rude. Yeah, it, it's it's a funny thing because you hear about people from big cities like London or Paris or whatever mm. being rude, and I never experienced that before. I've been to London, you know, a thousand times, right? I have never experienced people being rude. I thought, what are people talking about, you know? And then, having lived here for a few years, having lived up, up north for a few years. I went there and I thought, no one is saying hello. No one is, like, everyone is just barging you out the way. Like, even in Nottingham Town Centre, people mm. are still, like, people still say good morning and stuff. And everyone, I, I mean, I wasn't used to that when we moved here, right? Mm. Because there was there was a guy washing his car. We'd only lived there about a week. There was a guy washing his car and he went, hey, up, didn't he? Do you remember? Yeah, yeah. And, and like we didn't know him at all, he, uh, no, like complete stranger, just washing his car. We were just walking the dog, and he spoke to us. That does not happen. But I am so used to that happening now that you just say hello to everyone, as you know, as you take the dog for a walk, whatever. It's just a normal thing, and nobody does that. Uh, and everyone is very abrupt. Don't mess about. This is the information. Here you go. Done. Which yeah. is is. Which I never thought was a bad thing. You know, I'm I'm someone who enjoys, enjoys, um, who requires specific information. I don't like it when people waffle and don't get to the point. Just give me the information I need. If it's What like, are you doing on this podcast? No, do you know what I mean? If you ask some, if you ask a question. I'm being about silly. Something. I so, get yeah, well, it. Although I'm doing that now to you, I suppose. But um, yeah, I, I never experienced that as a rudeness thing. It's just, yeah, okay, that's that's how things are. And and yeah, I think maybe I am becoming a you, little bit northern. You started came, saying Mardi as well. I did start saying Mardi because I think it's a good word. What does it mean for grumpy. the benefit? Grumpy. There you go. Grumpy. But I didn't know that uh, initially. And someone asked me if my dog was Mardi. And I went, yeah, because <laughs> I had no idea what they were talking. I didn't know if that meant happy, sad, upset, 
ill. I didn't know what it meant, but I've learned, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, and, and you know, I, I missed seeing like the little cob shops. Uh, there were no cob shops in London. They do not exist. Cobs are rolls or baps or buns or yeah, what have not you. Buns, buns in are some, sweet. No, in, in some places, buns are just. Oh no, that's wrong. Yeah, <laughs> that's just wrong. A bun is sweet. There's there's one word in Lithuania no. we have uh-huh. for small bread mm-hmm. item, uh-huh. and that is like translated bun. You know, um, bandale. And that's it. And we don't need any other ones. We understand. But that's is, that's what you call the meat-filled buns too, yeah. right? That's confusing. Is it? A little bit. What if it was a plain bun? A plain roll? Sorry, this is coming from the country <laughs> that gave the world mince pies. What's up with a mince pie? What is mince? Uh, I, I Well, it's two different things. It's either... No, no, no. It's ground meat. Yeah. And then it turns out that when you have a mince pie, which, you know, you think pie, mince, meat, meat pie, you're <laughs> going to get something nice. No, you get a dis- disgusting, horrible raisin thing. <laughs> no, it's a delicious raisin thing. But, you know, they used to have meat in them anyway. That's why they were called mince pies. Yeah, you know, yeah. Anyway. But, but yeah. It's mince, so mince, mince meat. meat. Mince but meat. Mince, but mince meat is either... But you don't call it mince meat. Mince meat is specifically the sweet one. You wouldn't call minced beef mince meat. I mean, you might. Well, actually, no, you probably would. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. Right. So, I'm, I'm so that's not confusing, right? <laughs> I've fallen down a hole, a uh-huh. linguistic hole. But you just know from context. If someone said to you, do you want a mince pie? Thank you. Thank you for explaining <laughs> why you only need one word for bun. <laughs> Yeah, all right, fair. I mean, I think we've established now that you're northern, even though you don't sound northern at all, but you're becoming northern. Think, uh, well, no, well, I, you know, I. Sorry to scratch that. Welcome to Talk Cardboard, a podcast about board games and everything adjacent, with your couple of cunning cardboardians, Elaine and. Me, Efka. On today's show, we'll be blazing hiking, biking and kayaking loops in trailblazers, competing to become the greatest conductor on the island in Isle of Trains and hunting ancient creatures in our very early impressions of Beast. For those of you wondering where Cosmoctopus has slithered off to, it's in our Patreon-only bonus episode. And also, first impressions of Lords of Ragnarok, the new game from publisher Awakened Realms. It's only a two-player game impression. It's not a very positive one, but if you want to hear about that, that's in the Patreon bonus episode. First, though, Big Dave wrote in to let us know we'd made a mistake in our undaunted Battle of Britain discussion. They say... Just catching up on the latest episode regarding Undaunted, Efka said that it was a new toy being able to draw a card after removing a Fog of War card. Was this not in the original? I'm sure my copy of Normandy tells you to do this. Yeah, we made a mistake. Uh, It is a weird mistake because I am absolutely sure that when we were playing Normandy and North Africa, we were playing it correctly. I cannot guarantee whether we were playing that rule correctly when we played our campaign of Stalingrad, because I feel my brain just lost it somewhere. Yeah, mine too. I, maybe it was like a Mandela effect, you know, like I, yeah. I thought, like we knew the rule and then I thought that and then for some reason you also thought that. I don't know, maybe there was a rule that, I, I don't know. It's weird, isn't it? After this, we will never forget that rule. In any future Undaunted's, we'll know. Harry has emailed and I'd like to just read this small incredible bit in reply to my question about how we best learn board games. They say, 
My process for learning a game, usually learning a game I need to teach since I teach the game about 95% of the time, is to make my own version of the rulebook handwritten. I'll go through the rules, usually reading the rulebook to get an overall gist of what's going on. Then go back through the rulebook while taking notes, answering the questions, who are you in this game? How do you win? What is the flow of play? What can you do on your turn? Wow. Isn't that incredible? Incredible dedication. Hats off. However, saying that, right, I have occasionally made notes on things, especially if the rule book is um, difficult to reference, mm. right? I have sometimes made notes of like which bits are important. I'm not the world's best note taker. So, but I do do that in my brain. I do mull these questions over when reading the rules. If I'm going to teach this, which also uh, used to be a lot of the time I taught games, now you're the games teacher. Well, we both we both learn because we have so many games coming in. We both learn mm-hmm. them and we both teach them to each other. Yeah, but, but I'll go over. You know, I'll I'll go over these questions in my brain and and like try and focus the teach from that perspective as well. And I think these are really good questions to ask yourself. I think so too. If you're planning to teach a game. Thank you for your correspondence. And if you have anything to say to us, email elaine at nopunincluded.com. Still to come, we have Isle of Trains and our early impressions of Beast. But first we have a game that isn't a Hellraiser, nor a Storm Chaser, nor a natural-born raver, but is a Trailblazer. Trailblazers comes from publisher Bitewing Games by designer Ryan Courtney with artist Seth Lucas. Can I just ask, mm. uh, is that a reference to a song? Yeah. Why don't I know Bud it? Sweet. Oh, right, okay. That explains a lot. So this is what I'm going to dub Pipeline the Third. So we've had Pipeline from Ryan Courtney, and I think long-time listeners slash viewers will know that we love Pipeline. It was our game of the year for... It was Pipeline to my heart. You wrote a song for it. It was the game of the year for 2019, I believe. Uh, and yeah, it was just just great. Just really, really good. Solid stuff. Loved it. Um, then came Pipeline Junior. <laughs> Which uh, was a game called Curious Cargo, which we've also covered on a past Legacy Podcast episode. Uh, You can find that somewhere down on the podcast tab. We liked it less. Yeah, no, we did not like it at all, actually. Uh, So it, it had a spectacular shift where the rules and the scope of the game was much smaller, but still using this idea of connecting tiles that were pipes effectively uh but this was set in a warehouse where you had to create like pathways for delivering crates to one place of the warehouse to another but somehow i found (laughs) curious cargo to be a more complicated game than pipeline because there were a lot less rules but there was a lot more complexity and complexity in a in a way that felt incredibly hard to control because it almost felt like there were these two competing elements where um, the, the, the laying of the track was so intertwined with everything else that you do in the game, but everything else was, was very hard to predict and very hard to maneuver. So you had these two competing very strong elements that I did not feel complement each other. So now comes Pipeline the Third, which is Trailblazers, which we switched from oil to warehouse... And now we're in nature, right? Going the right way. Yeah, definitely, right? And I have to say 
that uh, we've also gone the right way in terms of streamlining, because this is yet again a slimmed down, trimmed down version of that core idea of pipes from pipeline. But now this is all there is. And what it does share with Curious Cargo is that you can overlay things. Correct, yes. So now you have these trail tiles, not pipes anymore. So, you know, there's three parts. There's uh, kayaking, bicycling, and hiking. hiking. And they're three different colors. And there are three camp cards, which are basically... the si- Just to give a visual idea, if you've seen Pipeline, you know what the size of these tiles are. But it's like two squares put together. And they always have one long trail going in various squiggly ways and then two little ones in the corners opposing corners so you have three paths on one tile and these paths might be of the same color or of different colors might have all three colors on it you never know they might intersect over one another Uh, so there's there's suddenly from this very simple tile you put a couple of them down things become very very complicated very quick and what the beauty of this is, is that this is the game, right? That's all you do. You're just placing tiles. Now, for, to facilitate that, there there are some gamey things. And I think these gamey things are integrated well. Um, so you, you draft uh, these card tiles. They're cards. Um, there was, so it gets weird because there are a lot of versions of Trailblazers. There's a travel edition, a normal edition, a deluxe edition, uh, a combination of these. There are regular paper cards. There are plastic cards. You might get one version or another. It depends. It came from Kickstarter. So, you know, all kinds of things. We have the plasticky cards. I'm sure that was a good decision for purposes of shuffling because when you have cards this small, and this oddly shaped rectangles, well, I mean, they're not oddly shaped, but like for cards, they are oddly shaped. They are hard to shuffle. F. is making with his hands, for those of you at home, something the size of roughly like a fondant fancy type shape. <laughs> Very good. Uh, or do you know what? It's well, about the size of a shortbread biscuit. Yeah. Right? Yeah, and the shape, is. right? But not as thick. Yeah. Um, so easier to shuffle in that regard. <laughs> I've never tried to shuffle a shortbread biscuit. I've never seen a reason to. Maybe we should. I don't know how we always get to desserts. Somehow it just it just goes there. Anyway, so yeah, hard to shuffle, but whatever. So you deal out each person eight cards, and then you'll pick two of these cards, put them on your trail, pass the other cards to the uh, to the next player. So it's a draft, and you. Uh, always take two, then two, then two, then the, the other two get discarded. And then you do four rounds of that, and then the game is over. The only twist is that uh, at the beginning of the first three rounds, you have to put down a base camp. And that base camp is always of one color. So it's it's either the base camp of the bicycling routes, or the hiking routes, or the kayaking routes. And but you so, can choose. Yeah. And and majority of where your scoring comes from is you have to create loops of paths that exit the camp, match the color, and then return back to that camp. Now, for every, like, segment in, in that trail, you'll get one point. So you want to make longer ones. But you only place, effectively, 24 cards through the course of the game. So, and because they intersect and collide and enmesh, and because, and this is very clever, the trails don't have to match. So the game deliberately allows you to make mistakes and wants you to make mistakes, which I think is very clever and very good. You're, you're trying to create this efficient path 
and connect as many cards as possible. And then the game allows you to overlay cards as well. And very quickly, we're entering the territory of Calico, where Calico very similarly has 22 tiles you lay, right? Not 24. I appreciate that. And the possibility space shrinks, 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 shrinks. Ah! Right? So you get that sort of real tense sensation. And I think if you didn't like Calico, if you played Calico and you were like, no, this is too much. Very simple rules, but very punishing game, right? Trailblazers really leans into a very similar territory. But also, and this is what I found in Trailblazers that made me like it more than Calico, which I know is a big deal because there are a lot of people out there who like Calico, is that it gives you the possibility for hubris. Because there's also these scoring conditions, and they are often absurd, right? Because they'll say things like, hey, if you loop one path, so you know, starting from this camp and returning to this camp, but you loop it around two other camps, right? You'll get six points and you're like, ooh, six points. But also all the points for this giant loop that you've created. And you might um, abandon all reason trying to make that path. It sounds like you are talking about a specific example or a specific player that did this, Efka. And then was one path short? I thought you were talking about me. Oh, right. I'm talking about you. We both did it. We both did it, yeah. In different games. Yeah. Right? In different games. But I think we've both done it. And the beautiful thing is that, like, so I was one path short, right? And I lost that game. But had I made that, like, had I finished that path, I would have overshot by so much. Like, it would have been amazing, right? And it always pushes you towards that don't play safe, don't play safe, don't play safe, don't play safe. And you're like, but I don't want to. This is very, very hard. I'm barely managing as it is. And it's like, no, more. I want more out of you. And you're like, is, is this a, a hiking trail or a boot camp? I don't know, but I'm subscribing. Um, so it's it's fun. I like it. It's It's very intense. It's very simple. And it's aesthetically beautiful right like really good art i i really like it it's it's a little on the cartoony side but i think it evokes the you know sort of hiking sensation pretty well right but i think the main game is fine where the game really took off for me was with the added animals module i think i'm not sure whether it comes with the base game or you have to get some sort of expansion but if you backed it on kickstarter it's probably there I don't know how the distribution model works, but before I get into the animals, I want to hear your impressions, Elaine, because you are a big Pipeline fan. So here's what I realised. I have played Pipeline a few times, you know. I Mm. like Pipeline. I've won Pipeline a couple of times. Um, I didn't realise quite how bad I was at the laying the pipes puzzle part. And the rest... But that's only a part of Pipeline, right? There's Mm. other things going on. And the other things that you do in Pipeline quite clearly bolstered me for having a terrible pipe network because I was terrible at this. I enjoyed it very much. I I had such a good time with it. But I wish one of the goals had been 
make some kind of triathlon because I would have nailed that because I had biking and hiking and kayaking trails all in one go. I just, I couldn't, I couldn't get them because you can legally, in Pipeline, you can't legally place like an orange pipe next to a Can you not? I think pipe. you can. It's just you don't want to. Okay. Well, yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, you, I don't remember. You really don't want, I, I thought you couldn't, but okay, sure. Maybe you can, but you don't want to. But in this, for some reason... It seems it seemed to be every other turn I was laying things that just didn't make any sense because I was so focused on trying to get these goals mm. that were literally only worth three extra points because in a two-player game, two yeah. game because I would get the six and then you would get the three yeah. uh, because I would do it first and then you would do it as mm. well mm. Uh, or I would have more and you would have slightly fewer but still get ah so I I ended up doing these ridiculous tracks like your one with the kayaking where you, you mm. almost would have got a bazillion points and then didn't manage to i ended up with you know water going over here and biking trails going over the water and just going back to nowhere and and animals everywhere that didn't make any sense ah oh, it was i it just it absolutely broke my brain it was such <laughs> <laughs> i had such a nice time with you Mm. Um, like you said, you know, I, I do enjoy this kind of puzzle, but I am very, very bad at it uh, because I have a very difficult time in envisioning how things go before I place them. Mm. Um, and you draft these tiles. So you you get eight and then you take two and the other player takes two and then you pass them over. Yeah, but you do get to place them before you pass over. The, so that's the one saving grace, right? Where you're not completely breaking your brain. You, right, right. Yeah. But then I was looking at the rest of them thinking, okay, I might get these ones back. Mm -hmm. How can I place these as well? Because, you know, you're trying to think a couple of turns ahead because yeah. you want to build yeah. these trails and loop them around and blah 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 and so I thought okay I can do this and then you would give me the tiles back and I would think they're not the tiles that I thought they were <laughs> this one goes in the completely opposite direction than yeah. what I thought it did and and I was I just made a mess basically but it was it was a kind of fun mess like playing in a sandpit you yeah. know and I what I do like I, I always appreciate a small game and it comes with a carabiner our version uh, which was the the, the travel version transport version yeah travel version uh which i appreciate a game that comes with a carabiner you clip it on your knapsack and off you go and then you can play it anyway and because it's plastic it doesn't matter if it's raining it wouldn't matter if you had uneven ground yeah uh, but you could play that anywhere i mean there's some irony there because the plastic cards are obviously not very environmentally friendly and this is a very like naturey kind of game but it it was made in a way that you can take it to nature and play it in nature drop it in the sea whatever that doesn't matter yeah so i don't know and yeah, uh, mm, uh, that bit you know weird theming wise but but i appreciate that it is resistant to the forces of nature what would you have preferred like like something made out of rice paper i think so I, that i just would have preferred a more condensed i think what that game should have been is always just a carabiner. It didn't need to have the deluxe wooden meeples and all, like this big box and whatever. I think if that game came in the carabiner, I would just not stop talking about it. I think that would be the ideal form factor because I don't think anyone... Okay, so you need, you need to have the animals expansion, but you don't have to have the wooden, you know, like animals or whatever. They come with little tokens and they fit into the carabiner. It's fine. And not, the carabiner is the clip. 
sorry, the 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 holder with the right, carabiner, right. right? And there there's also like so it's a two to eight player game, uh, but like if you just want to play with four people, there's like there's basically two decks of the same trails or pipes, if you will, and you can you can take one of these out, and then if you do that, I mean, with some pushing, I managed to fit everything in into the, just this one little tiny uh, holding case with the carabiner. But if you take one of these out, it fits very easily, right? The entire game into the small thing. If you don't have the deluxe stuff, right? So I wish, I kind of wish that it didn't come in this, also in this giant box. Not giant, like, I don't know, undaunted size box. I would say about similar similar dimensions, you know? So for me, the only thing that's missing is this perfect form factor. But I want to talk a little bit about the Animals expansion, because that's where I fell in love with the game. I liked it up until that point but the animals expansion really does something to it that just solidifies everything the design is going for because it it basically pushes you more more towards hubris because in addition to having these free uh, trails on each uh card you also sometimes sometimes have one of six different animals so it's a jaguar or an eagle or a buffalo or a Mace. bear wolf um moose yeah there we go that's the six animals right no raccoon sadly i'm very disappointed anyway so you now if you place a tile that has a picture of an animal you can choose to place an animal token or a wooden meeple uh on top of it if you do that then you cannot overlay that card anymore it's locked in basically forever it will be there the way it is but also that animal belongs to the long part of the trail on that card and then for if it's in a completed loop, uh, it will score progressively more points for every different animal that it has. Now, by itself, that doesn't sound like it adds anything more than an opportunity for scoring like points in an extra way. But what it actually does is it incentivizes you having absurd long loops. And it, it incentivizes you kind of like going, how can I make this big? But if only I just made it bigger. But if I just added one more animal, <laughs> if I could just somehow, and that's obviously in many cases a mistake because it's so hard to contain this thing already. It's like it's like spaghetti, but there's so much spaghetti, it just keeps multiplying and falling out of your plate and you try to put it back, just go back on the plate and it won't go back on the plate. That's how Trailblazers feels, right? And, and animals adds animals into the spaghetti. So not only is the spaghetti multiplying on your plate and growing out of proportion, but there's also buffalo stampeding out of it, right? And you're just like, no, go back onto the plate. Um, so I don't know. It just made me really, really kind of weirdly more invested in the game because it's a very light game. And it, it just says, no, think about what you're doing even more than you were before. And also try and shoot the moon, you know, try and try and really reach for these absurd goals and I just really, really like that. I found it so much fun. So for me, Pipeline, amazing. Pipeline Junior, eh. Pipeline the Third, oh, back to form, right? That that would be my verdict. Jay's written in about a game we discussed in the previous episode. Just wanted to comment on Hamlet. I quite liked it, and there are a couple of reasons why. It reminds me of the computer game Echo, where you're all working together to build a society, but also trying to make the world yours at the same time. 
because of the framework of I've made things better in general, but even more better for me, the points make a lot of sense. You get points whenever you help the village, but you get the most points if you set the village up to help you help it more. Also, the resource stealing bits are only the first few turns until you build up enough workers to do multiple things. People can't steal the wood your first worker makes for your second worker, so it kind of shoots that bit in the foot, which is unfortunate because that's more the opportunistic game I was looking for. The other cool thing is that with more workers, you're more likely to have nothing better to do than make resources with some of them, leaving opportunities for others and gold for yourself. Is it the greatest game ever? Nah, I think Elaine nailed it with fine and I did feel like it overstays its welcome when the wrong buildings come out but maybe that's our fault as players for not flying through the buildings. I'm quite pleased with it and it generates the right sort of feelings that I paid for. I really appreciate people writing in with different takes than ours. It's really nice to hear someone else's perspective and why they enjoyed a game we didn't enjoy. So thanks for writing in. I I get where Jay is coming from because... I guess I do sometimes feel that hankering for something like like opportunistic, but also kind of symbiotic. Um, but I like it when a game does it a little bit more organically. And that's why I think last episode I was referring a lot to Brass and to Food Chain Magnet, even though I'm not the world's greatest Food Chain Magnet fan, I'll admit that. But, but there's something about that sort of shared possibility space that is really appealing, but you are still sort of playing for yourself and, and you kind of, you know, want to play out exploitation it sounds grim it is a little bit grim but in a safe environment right like in a safe contained environment where it does no one no harm you are you are playing out something a little bit more devious right that is what play is about sometimes uh and yeah i just i'm not sure hamlet nailed that for me you know i, I think that's actually what i wanted more from it uh i wanted to see more of those elements emerge but but a lot of it became quite road but I, I really appreciated that email so thank you very much our second game is isle of trains which comes from publisher drander games by designers seth jaffe and dan keltner with artist dennis martinez very specifically this is isle of trains all aboard which is the second edition of isle of trains which i've only found out once we finished playing isle of trains all aboard and then realize, oh, this this is not a new game. But this is something I backed on Kickstarter uh, because it looked cute and it looked small and it looked not very expensive. And this was before I developed a distaste for something that uh, podcast listeners are by now very familiar with. Yes, this is a game that comes with no board but has an optional playmat board. If oh, you want, oh, if you oh. want to, if you want to spend more money and add more plastic, you can. Apparently, I did. So <laughs> shame on me. Well, yeah, but the thing is, you know, if you don't have the playmat, you're playing just on your table. The wi- you're not so, playing on a board. So the, there's <laughs> that's fine because this is effectively a card game. But there is a weird element because the the cards that go on the table and specifically on the playmat, if you have it, compose a city, right? But this city out of six cards or seven in a more player game, it is, you know, visually, they, they sort of add up together and they are also scoring goals. So when you achieve that scoring goal, you take away the card. Like a big giant scooping up part of the city. Which is kind of weird because it's like 
you just have a city that just sort of stops middle way through and routes that go into nowhere now. But if you have the playmat, then the artwork of the city is underneath, so that still works. So it was clearly designed with that board in mind, aesthetically, right? With the idea that you will have this playmat, but you don't get the playmat in the box. You you just you just get it if if you optionally back it on Kickstarter. The playmat doesn't fit in the box. No, yeah, it doesn't. Um, so yeah, you have to store it outside of the box, which is you know. Uh, board games are always trying, you know, board gamers are always trying to have smaller boxes or condensed boxes because then more things fit on the shelf, which maybe is a bad impulse. I don't know. But storage is important, right? And and this is just this new... I'm sorry, I keep going on about this. I'm so but sorry. I don't, I don't want to have to also buy like a gun rack to put my, my play mats in. <laughs> oh, God, that well. went dark. Um, all right, okay. One more time. Publishers, please stop not putting boards and doing optional playmats. I don't like it. It feels wrong. I and think an optional playmat is fine if there is also a board. Yes. Maybe people want a playmat. That's fine. Yeah. But give me a board. Can we have a self-contained game? This isn't 18xx where you have to buy poker chips on the side, okay? Just please stop it. Anyway, about, about the, the game. game. <laughs> I liked it. It was fine. Um, so it, it's actually quite nice. It's quite cute. So we we bumped Cosmoctopus to the bonus episode because I just didn't quite cut it. And this was in a similar vein than Cosmoctopus, which you can listen to in the bonus episode. Uh, but slightly better, I felt. I, I enjoyed it a little bit more. Aesthetically not as pleasing as Cosmoctopus, but, but this is a slightly better game. Um, and... It's kind of weird to see that this got a second edition because clearly someone else thought this game is fun. Let's, you know, develop it a little bit more. There's really something here. And I think there is because it's very old fashioned. You know, it's about trains. So that's already a like little bit. steam trains. Yeah. It's a little bit old fashioned in terms of that's that's a theme board games have seen once or twice. Um, <laughs> but But also the gameplay feels like if I had to give a specific thing that's different about Isle of Trains than any other game. I couldn't find one, you know? There are elements of this I've seen somewhere else. But there's also interesting elements. So, for example, it's got that 51st state uh, engine building element where if you have a card that you got because it gives your train various combos, I can load your, like, train's uh, compartment, that specific compartment with a good of mine and then that will give me bonuses which are often pretty good and i want but it will also load your train with cargo which you don't have to do yourself and that cargo is good because that lets you complete these objectives and you know score points and whatnot so there's this cool symbiotic play that is very emergent in a pretty quick 30 minute game um, and it, it's got interaction and this constant like, so what do you got over there? What, what's, what's happening over on your train? And that's another cool part because you're actually building a train. So you start with a train engine. Engine, thank you. Clearly a train person here. Um, you start with an engine, but there are no carriages. But you can add these carriages because they're cards in your hand. And so you lay out this chain of cards 
that is your train. So the carriages have different things. They can carry coal, they can carry oil, they can carry crates, and they can carry passengers. And also your engine can carry one passenger. Which is weird because like you wouldn't sit up front with the train driver. Yeah, this is a cool train where you can like buy a special ticket and, you know, sit on the it's bit that does island. the choo-choo. Yeah. I, I did, uh, there was a time when I went to Scotland once where I had to ride in the post van mm-hmm. because there was no bus. Mm. So you had to sit in the Royal Mail van, like with the postman and cool? all the sacks of mail to get somewhere. Yeah, and yeah. That, that's kind of what it's reminiscent of. Maybe maybe we're missing something. Like in olden times, there used to be like a passenger seat on, on the I don't uh, engine. Think so. No? No, because up front there was all the like fire. Yeah. <laughs> and what's wrong with that? It's warm. <laughs> The reason you build any of this stuff is because you want to load it with goods and then you load it with goods um, and deliver it to a part of the city or no, like a different part of the island. It's six different cities. And then you score points. You take that card away from the island. That city is now yours. It's going to score you points at the end of the game. But it also says... Hey, if you make this bigger delivery or even bigger delivery, you will get points or even more points, right? And you're like, ooh, okay, now I have to work towards this. And you have to because you can't get another scoring card until you've, like, did the second delivery to that city. But there's also another puzzle because each city is associated with a certain passenger color so whenever you deliver passengers to a city it will give you various bonuses that are kind of important because the neat trick of this game is that everything is cards your goods are cards your money that you pay for playing cards are cards your uh, anything things you build cards right so and it's all the same deck it's all multi-purpose cards and you very quickly run out of cards and, and sometimes your only option is to just draw one card and you only have two actions a turn, right? So you don't want to draw one card. You want to draw five cards. And if you deliver this orange passenger to this orange city, or it might be different in your game, uh, you, you will get five cards for doing that. So that sounds better. But then you realize you need to draw the orange passenger, which is random what passenger you draw because they come from a bag. Then you need to load that passenger. That's an action, right? And then you need to deliver that passenger. That's free action. So it's free actions to get five cards which is more efficient but then you realize that if you do this special ability on your opponent's train and load a a good on them you'll get a free load passenger action which you can do on your train so you saved yourself an action and did something else right because you got more cards and then you also have this other carriage which does this special ability and suddenly your combo 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 oh right okay this is what's happening i think that was a very i was gonna say succinct i'm not sure that's the word that was a very well put explanation of how this game flows. Mm. Um, uh, what I was going to say is that occasionally you have this idea of, okay, well, I'm going to deliver the orange passenger to the orange city to get the cards. So you, you draw your meeple. Oh, yes, finally I got an orange one. But before you load it, the other player loads their passenger onto your train. And because your train can only have one passenger, you don't suddenly have this orange passenger and your plan is ruined. Mm. There's there's a lot of fun moments where it's like it either flows or it doesn't, right? And and you kind of go from a high to a low, then a high again, uh, because you're kind of like comboed into these things and you're like achieved something and suddenly like, oh, wait, the combo is done. What next? Oh, I have nothing. So I have to claw 
o'clock. Yeah, there was there was a couple of points where I just got stuck mm-hmm. because I. I couldn't draw the anything that I needed to do anything. So I ended up just uh, drawing one. I, there was two turns, two entire turns, four actions where I just drew a card because I needed to get this card in order to do this thing, which would let me do this thing. And I couldn't do any of the rest of this stuff until I got that card. Um, I mean, part, partly it was hubris um, initially uh. because I'd taken this this contract I delivered this contract and then the secondary contract was a lot harder to fulfill than I had imagined right I thought it's not going to be that hard but then I didn't have the cards in my hand um you didn't have the cards in your your the cars sorry in your train Uh that would let me load something on it just it just didn't work so Mm. partly it was kind of bad planning or but and just things not coming out i just think flow changes in this game you know very much very much sometimes it's up sometimes it's down whereas then sometimes there would be a turn where you delivered the uh, initial contract delivered a passenger delivered other passengers that didn't really want to go there but gave Mm. you cards if you drop them off there anyway like it it flowed really well sometimes Mm. I think the weird part is the end game scoring. Uh, not the end game scoring, the end game trigger condition. Because it's basically in a, in a two player game, let's say. And I think it triggers even faster in a four player game and more abruptly. But it's basically four contracts have been picked up, which kind of makes sense because there's not much more to do. But the thing about these contracts is that in a two player game, let's sort of simulate how this plays out. So each player picks up a contract. And, you know, we can't pick up another one because we have to, like, fulfill the other side of that uh, contract, the secondary part. part, Yeah. And then we pick up another contract and then we both do that and the game ends. Now, to disrupt that, there's also each time you deliver a passenger to a city, it sort of fills that city up and if when that city is full, that also advances the end game trigger. So instead of someone picking up a contract... It could be one of those. But it is entirely feasible that you will trigger game end by picking this second contract, which does have this second half that you could do. But you can never do that because you likely just have triggered end game. And it feels very anticlimactic and weird. Not from like a strategic perspective, just kind of a, you know, but I just signed myself up for this duty. Oh, it's done. Right. Okay. I don't know. It just doesn't sit with me, you know? You know what was quite strange? So when you deliver a passenger, thematically, you're selling them a ticket. Mm. But you've delivered the passenger. Yes. And then you're selling them the ticket and that's when you get the bonuses. Is that what happened in the oldie worldie times? I don't know. I know. You know, that that didn't bother me so much. (laughs) Sorry, I just got hung up on that, like, momentarily. Uh, Yeah, no, you are right. That that is what happens. The, The game kind of ebbs and flows and then suddenly ends right yeah and it's i guess like there's this ideal if you played this a lot where like every every person picks up one contract and then someone probably tries to trigger endgame by delivering passengers before the other person can complete the other part of the contract but you've completed your part of the contract for or something like that but it just i don't know it feels slight and not quite like I don't know. That's not where the fun of the game is. This game is not super complex. It's not this big strategy experience. It's more kind of like I'm literally building an engine in a train and it has fun combos and it's going to take 30 minutes and we're going to play some cards and it's going to be a nice time. And and 
for that, the ending feels bizarre. Overall, I enjoyed it. Um, there were parts of it that I kind of went, eh, did this have to be like this? But um, I enjoyed building the train. I enjoyed very much the interaction between us as in a two-player game. That Do you have coal? Oh, do you have a space for coal? I mean, like, is there a space for coal on your train? Oh, yes, there is. Okay, cool. Okay, I want to load my coal onto your train because then I get some bonus or other that's going to really help me. Uh, and, and I like that to and fro that, that was between us. Um, but I think when you get stuck, you really get stuck. But mm. like I said, maybe that was just bad planning. Maybe uh, maybe I just haven't played enough to, to get an idea of what those combinations and that sequencing is. So maybe I just need to play it more. But do you want to play it more? Yeah, I, I like it enough to play it more. I would quite like to try the solo version as well, just to see how that works. That could be fun, you know, just making combos by yourself. And yeah. how that different differs between you know because you wouldn't have this interaction obviously so yeah. what, what changes what does the game do to kind of replicate that or does it do something entirely different hmm. how do you exploit when there isn't another player to exploit i thought you enjoyed it less from how we talked about it initially but i'm, I'm surprised i'm surprised that you've enjoyed it so much i thought it was fine you know like i felt like it's something i've seen already done many times namely 51st Day I mentioned before, that, that really comes to mind. But it is more condensed than any of those games. It is it is smaller in scope, it is quicker. Imperial Settlers, which is an offshoot of 51st Day, that game was long, that game was so this long. This was very quick. This was rather quick, and that's nice. And I think it would be quick with more people as well. I don't think it's going to outstay its welcome. I just want to say very quickly, I don't understand why there are so many people competing to make train tracks and trains on this island and deliver goods. It, it makes no sense. This island is tiny. Yeah. Why are there... It's like the Isle of Wight having like 50 different train tracks and deliveries on it. Like, why? Yeah. Why? Just take a ferry to it and a ferry back and maybe have some rail or, or road even just to deliver good... It just doesn't make any sense. And, wh like, why are you all competing to deliver oil and boxes and what's in the boxes and coal? Like, just one of you, it's fine. Just have a company. Just don't privatise things. This is what happens when you privatise things. Okay, cool. Uh, do you know what bothers me? Devon City. Because that doesn't make any sense. It's just Devon. There's a place called Devon City, but th there is a Devon in the real world. It's like saying Germany country. <laughs> like, no, <laughs> but thank Devon's you. But Devon's not a city in, in where Devon is in Britain. It's just a town. It's a town. Yeah, no. No, it's a county. Oh, no, but isn't there a Devon, Devon? Isn't, is there a Devon in Devon? I don't think so. No. Maybe. Oh, don't. Oh, you're showing me up now for my geography. I've never been that far west. It's 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 like my idea about little by little. Shall I, I tell don't. people about no. little by Can I tell they people? They don't need to know this. Okay, so so here's my pitch towards little, the shop chain of food that sells supermarket, right? So it's it's called little, right? And the idea is that if you built a little next to another little you could call it little by little. Isn't that genius? I think everyone just switched. There's no point talking about the rest of these games now because everyone's just passed out with exasperation. Efka. 
Yes. We had a huge amount of discussion on our Discord board about measurements, which we spoke about in the last episode. Oh, good. I said, if you remember, it annoys me that every country seems to have some kind of arbitrary measurement in cooking. And, you know, it seems like I'm not the only one. People were talking about sticks, nuts and knobs of butter, the Australian tablespoon, which for some reason is five millimetres more than everywhere else, standard size onions, which are anything between one and two kilos, the fact that there is not only a US legal measurement, but also a US customary measurement, milk that comes in bags and a zucchini the size of Arnold Schwarzenegger's arm. Okay, so two things I have to say about that. Number one, sorry, an onion is a kilogram. I thought that. What doesn't make any sense uh, should we go and weigh our onions and check they're probably 300 grams max no I, if that well uh, like a spanish onion yeah it okay those where are they big come right yeah it depends well again again if a recipe just says an onion what if you have a spanish onion I, i'm what sorry i've have... never seen an onion the size of a kilogram never ever <laughs> between one and two kilograms what? no go away <laughs> the onions don't exist in those sizes anyway a uh, second thing i wanted to add right uh so for milk that comes in what did you say bags bags I I got an up on that. Uh, please Google Soviet triangle milk, and you might be able to find the triangle carton that it's, milk it's came the in the one Soviets. That, that comes in a vending machine, is it? I mean, maybe. Yeah, I don't know. Because we we in Britain, I say we. You know, it was before my time. Yeah. But we in Britain had milk that came in cartons and they were like little triangular pouches there was a triangle it's 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 a 3d triangle so it's, yeah, it's yeah, kind of yeah. hard to describe yeah. but it is literally a triangle what's, what's a 3d triangle called you're good with shapes a pyramid oh <laughs> i'll cut that bit out i don't want to look like no an no no we're keeping that in <laughs> who's editing the podcast you are uh, and you're keeping it in <laughs> um yes it's called a pyramid i thought it was called a d4 you see mm. um yeah okay so yeah there's there's milk in but i think they were talking about milk in supermarkets yeah also sorry can i just add i know that people will come in and say no a pyramid has is not a triangle because it has four like angles going down not three like in a triangle but but also that's that's not entirely true because a pyramid is both it's both the four and the three i've looked this up unless you can prove me wrong don't prove me wrong. Well, there you go, people. Uh, Efka's knowledge of shapes, 3D or 2D or one-dimensional. I don't know what, what your knowledge of those are. Strikes again. Thank you, Efka, for your knowledge sharing. I think we probably talked about this in the previous episode or something like that. When we talked about Kemet or whatever, I'm sure it's not my knowledge. But I've learned a lot from people writing in. If you want to get in on all the wonderful, friendly community chat, you can join us at patreon.com forward slash no pun included. Simon has emailed in about Maki, which we spoke about in a previous episode. Played Maki nine times now without getting into the hardest missions yet, but wanted to mention something about the variability of the game. It's not actually mentioned in the rulebook per se, but the rulebook says that you may always check the discard pile of your police cards. Additionally, it provides a list of all the possible police cards in the game. I did check BGG after one or two plays, and it seems most other players think the correct way to play is to actually plan your move with the exact knowledge of what cards could come up next. 
That way, in some rounds, you can even have the perfect information, which spots might get hit with policemen, and you might only need the conga line to be safe when the deck resets itself. It's still a tight puzzle, in my opinion, since if some police person blocks the other, they might still capture your person, depending on the sequence you flip them in, and I think it's much more interesting than just a game of chance. Wanted to somewhat quickly mention this, since it might improve your enjoyment of the game as it did for me. Thank you very much. If you want to hear more about McKee, it's in the previous episode. We discussed it. We liked it. We thought it was very good. Um, I appreciate this email very much. My one note, and I agree, that sounds actually like you should play it like that. My one note, the game should come with a reference card. Then, If that is the strategy, don't make me make printouts. Kind of like allude to that, you know, say, hey, this is what you can do in the game. And I appreciate that some people want to learn that organically. But I think just including a reference and saying... These are the possible cards. That might be pretty good. Unless it is in the game. Okay, went upstairs, checked it, it, it's not in the game. So yes, this is definitely something that McKee could do with, I think, as an included thing. Sure, you can print it out. But if you don't, you're giving people an idea that this is part of the strategy and they should be thinking about that. I think, I think publishers should lead people towards, oh, okay, this is how I should be playing, you know, because I think it makes the game more open for everyone. Our last game is our very early impressions of Beast, which comes from publisher Studio Midhall by designers Aaron Midhall and Elon Midhall and Asa Peterson with art by Aaron Midhall. This is a first for the Talk Cardboard podcast because this is a game for the first time that we are covering twice. And both of these times, it's sort of first impressions, which is a bizarre situation. So we've given, given our first impressions of Beast when it was on Kickstarter and uh, it was also on tabletop uh, simulator and back in the very much pandemic days, slightly less pandemic days now, a lot of people were playing things on tabletop simulator and I kind of wanted to try out Beast because the artwork, oh my god, the artwork. This game really, really looks really fantastic. Did I say really? Really fantastic. Once or twice. Yeah, so I, I, I was very compelled by the artwork. I also really like hidden movement games, and I wanted to check out this cool new hidden movement game. Uh, and if you want to hear about that, it's in the Legacy episodes. You can find it. Uh, however, uh, now we played it more, now that it's been delivered, uh, we've, again, only played it twice. Um, and I think that's where we're going to stop. Uh, so that gives an early spoiler of... Uh, but that's my fault. No, well, you're getting ahead of yourself, I think. Um, I disagree. Uh, it's not just your fault. I, I didn't enjoy the game either. But we'll get into that a little bit later. Um, that's not how... See, now, now, now I have to unravel this. Okay, so it's not that I didn't enjoy it. I've just seen it done better. That, that'll do for now. Yeah, thank you. So, uh, Beast is a hidden movement game. Uh, the principle of it is that one player plays a beast... Uh, and that could be a wolf called Fenrir or a giant boar called Hogbad. And there's also there's also the people, you know, like Helga or Asar, I think the is hunters. another. The hunters, right? So there's this dichotomy of like the beast of the land and then the new people in the land who are not so much getting on with the beast. And so they want to kill the beast and the beast wants to preserve its kind of natural habitat, right? And, and as the beast, you move hidden along a map uh, and the other players are not hidden they're out and about trying to hunt you and find you 
And that's where the hidden movement comes in because they're trying to do to do deduce where you are going. Um, now, uh, <laughs> you're laughing at my <laughs> triple deuce. Sorry, it's triple D deuce, but not triple deuce. Um, I've dug myself a hole. Let's quickly shovel out of it. Um, the one thing that sets this apart slightly from other hidden movement games is how you move as the hidden beast. So uh, the sort of cool element here is that you have this deck of tiny cards that say east, west, north, south, uh, or no movement. Uh, and each time you're allowed to make a move, uh, you are playing one of these cards effectively and saying, I moved west, or I moved east, or I moved south, or I didn't move at all. But the hunters don't know where you've moved because these cards are face down. And when they do eventually find you or where you, you reveal yourself, they will be flipped open and you'll be like, oh, so I went there and then went there and then went there and so on. So the hunters can check. Yeah, yeah. But it's it's kind of like a cool reveal moment. It's like, oh, but I went there and then I was thinking this, etc., etc. So that's nice. The other thing that sets it apart slightly is that as the beast, you tend to reveal yourself quite a bit because it is embaked into the mechanisms of the game. Uh, you are often incentivized uh, killing these various smaller animals like uh, boars or sheep or people. Uh, but people, not hunters, people, settlers or no, like the farmers and settlers, I think. Farmers, farmers and Farmers and nobles. Farmers and nobles, there we go. But collectively, I think they're called settlers. Sure. Anyway, yeah. So you have these kind of things that you want to kill either because they're your objective or because you'll get grudges out of it. And grudges are basically coins. They're the currency of the game that lets you power up special abilities, uh, buy upgrades for your character, and so on and on. They're good, you want them. So you are incentivized to reveal because anytime you attack, not just kill, attack anything, you're saying, I am here. You have to reveal yourself. You have to show everyone the path that you took. And there's one more final element of this game is that how you do anything is by playing cards. Um, but these cards are drafted. So each character you play comes with its own set of cards. And these cards also have these half-moon symbols that one's like red and the other's green, and you can play two cards a turn, or one card a turn, or none, if you'd like. Uh, but if you're playing two cards, they have to be the two different half-moons. So you have to play one red, one green card. You can't play two red cards, and so on. But the drafting is really different uh, to other hidden movement games because there's not a lot of these action cards that you draft. Uh, but they are double-sided because one side is what the hunters do and the other side is what the beast does. And you draft between the hunters and the beasts. So if you're taking a card that lets you move a lot, you're taking that card away from the beast player, but the cards you're passing to the beast player might let the beast attack more, or vice versa. Uh, and so you really have to weigh up what must I take at the beginning of the round, so much so that it becomes one of the central focuses on the, of the game. Because if you've drafted poorly in beast, you will sit there the entire round not being able to achieve much. And there's only three rounds in the game. And sometimes the game winds up by the second round because someone achieves the victory condition and the game is over. So the draft impacts what you do. And you don't draft much. So you make a mistake there, that might cost you the game. 
And I think that for me is problem number one. I think this will appeal to some people because it makes it a very skillful game, obviously. You, you, you basically can't make mistakes if you want to play well. So it demands a lot of you from the get-go. And of course, if you're not familiar with the game very much, it might be a tough slog going through these first games. Now, there is a lot of excitement in the game. There's a lot of fun things you can do, a lot of fun abilities you can upgrade and suddenly go, oh, okay, I can do this and I can do that. But uh, the weird part of that is that the first round, you don't get any of that, or mostly don't get any of that, because you can only get upgrades uh, at the end of the round. And seeing as there's two, at most, three rounds in any given game... That's not quite true. It depends what contract you've taken. There could be more. That's true. Uh, um, so, th yeah, there are different contracts, with, which are kind of like scenarios uh, for what you're trying to achieve in the game. So uh, why don't we talk a little bit about our games and, and, and how we've played them and what happened, and maybe that'll give people a sort of broader picture of, of how it plays out rather than just the mechanisms. So in a first game... You, Elaine, played as... Fengrir. Fengrir is the name, right. Okay, and that's the big bad wolf? Uh-huh. Vilkas Pilkas, yeah. Thank you for the Lithuanian insert there. Um, and I played as uh, two hunters. Uh, one of them was very good at tracking things, and the other one was very good at revealing where the beast moved. They were like the seer, so they were like... What's the last movement card you played? Aha, uh -huh. at some point you did go in that direction. And that sort of gives you a clue in terms of, you know, where to look for, how to, how to hunt and stuff like that. Um, the first game was, I don't know about you, but for me it was the more enjoyable game. Because I played as, as the hunters and you played as the beast. Do you think that's like a role that's more natural to you? I was going to ask you the same question because you said it, the first scenario was more enjoyable. Is that because you enjoyed playing as the hunters more? So I have the same question, really. I, I did prefer playing as the beast, yes. Mm, strange. I don't know if I have a preference. I think for me the contract was what made the game rather than the beast because we played two different contracts. So one of them is a more standard, well, the beast is hidden and there are objectives dotted across the map uh, being the settlers, if they can kill a certain number of settlers, they win. Uh, the second contract we played was there are settlers on one side of the map. They need to get two thirds across the map to a specific city. If at least one of them makes it, the hunters win the game, which kind of put it upside down. And maybe because I was playing a beast that was sort of well suited to counter and we again I didn't pick that by no, knowing right, that yeah. I just wanted to play the character called Hogbad yeah. I wanted to play the boar called Hogbad and Hogbad turned to be very good at pushing things away with his uh warhogs not warthogs warhogs mm -hmm. and it just seemed well suited for it and it also had a lot of health more than other beasts and what became very, very weird in that second scenario was that I didn't find the need to be hidden much. So there is another mechanism in this game where you can summon minions. Every beast has their own minions and there are cards that will let you activate minions and move them or summon another minion, right? And because my minions were good at pushing things away and attacking things on their own, uh, I just spent the first entire round hiding and spawning minions where I could and getting... Uh, grudges to get myself the upgrades I needed 
So I was hidden for the first round, and I, in fact, I did this weird, very weird thing where, like, I didn't move towards my objective, I moved away from my objective, because, like, I thought, you're probably going to look in the direction that is natural to go in, and I was like, okay, I'll just go in the opposite direction and just hide out and, you know, buy time, and at the end of the round, maybe kill a boar, which is going to, you know, fulfill part of my contract. Uh, and and then I was just, after that, just out in the open because I thought, well, you can't have enough attack cards to just deal with me. And if I just focus everything I have, just not hiding and just trying to kill these two settlers that you've been moving towards me, then I don't need to hide. But that, that's the thing, because I kind of thought you might go off in the opposite direction but i still had these two settlers that i had to kind of try and protect mm -hmm. uh, in, in, you can't really protect them you can't buff them or anything like that but i had to keep my hunters kind of near them to protect them from you right and my hogs and your hogs and you started with two hogs on the board already yeah uh, which did make it quite difficult and i think i maybe picked the wrong characters if i'd known what Hogbad could do and what they could do with the uh, summons, I might have picked a different character, a different hunter, because mm. the one of the because I played two because in a two-player game, one plays the beast, the other player plays two hunters. One of the ones I picked was uh, one that could set traps uh, slightly more easily. It started with a trap card, um, and and that didn't work out so well for me because like you said you know you were revealed quite a lot of the game and you were moving the minions around you're moving these these summons around which don't affect the traps in any way at all it's only when i reveal uh i search and reveal the beast or i on, give myself away in a specific area right? on a specific type of region that i have to pick when i set the trap that it triggers and that didn't really happen because that didn't worry you yeah like, he, he, that wasn't a thing so I, I think it was just maybe a case of not being familiar enough with the game and and I would have picked something different because I knew what beast you were picking mm. but what I do want to say uh, slightly as an aside is the theming of the game I just want to talk about that a little bit what I like about it is that depending on which side you are playing, that is the good side. Yes. So if you are playing as the beast, you are... I don't know why it's called beast, really, because that gives it a negative connotation. Uh, it's more like a protector kind of situation where whatever animal uh, you are playing as, uh, the wolf or the mm. frog or, or the hog, uh, you are protecting your land you you've mm. lived here for a long time mm. this is where your natural habitat is and suddenly these settlers are coming and they are destroying your lands they are doing horrible human things that humans do mm. uh, to each other and to you and to the other animals in this forest whatever wherever we are and you are just trying to protect that you are just trying to get rid of this threat to your livelihood and your life uh, but if you play as the hunters, mm. you are trying to protect your civilization that is a, a burgeoning civilization because you've just moved here and this land was lush and lovely and wonderful. And they look very plucky as well. They do, don't they? Yeah, yeah you, you're, you're kind of, yeah, in a non-kind of exploitive way. Mm -hmm. Like that you're just trying to survive as yeah. a human. You are trying to be part of this ecosystem, but maybe slightly if, I don't know. But you are just trying to not die. Yeah, they don't look exploitative. They they look more like, you know, 
homey and and i guess that gives a vibe of like yeah they're just people trying to live on the land rather yeah. than you know some, some of the like, beasts backstories do give a slightly different tone to that feel to that mm-hmm. but again that's just from the beast's perspective mm-hmm. so is that true or is that an unreliable narrator who knows yes i like that i think the theming was um, it's, it's sort of like you know it's a big subject man versus nature and i think they they sort of landed it in in very you know like kind of like you could see it veering in either direction mm. but actually they they landed it square in the middle and quite well i i think it's executed really really exceptionally well in the way that most board games don't manage to do right because you don't have big guns you don't have big you know weapons or or, or anything like that you are just these kind of basic plucky humans that are mm. setting a trap or doing one damage you know when when the beast has maybe five health so you're not you know bowling in destroying everything mm. you're just doing it a bit of damage you are defending yourself so yes. it does give that vibe and i do appreciate that i think so too yeah but i think um to reel it back into the mechanisms a little bit i think you nailed it precisely in terms of what my issue with this game is so it's as i mentioned a very skillful game right but the problem i think isn't that it's a skillful game because that would be absurd the problem is that it's it's a very sandboxy hidden movement game where it almost hits that like spirit island and it's i thought that yeah yeah and and not just thematically but more like you kind of have to make your own game right you have to decide on what the difficulty is what beast is good in what scenario how strong is it compared to other beasts how good is it against certain players and and i think that would be fine in a cooperative game because it clearly works in spirit island but in a competitive game it, it does require a lot of sort of trial and error trial and error where spirit island is fun from the get go uh and beast is more like oh, I've learned that the game is less about hiding and more about drafting a little bit of cards at the beginning. And I must make sure I land this just right. And then if I don't, it's just a slow trudge towards lose town, right? And and that <laughs> trial and error isn't especially fun if you have to work a lot to get to where the game is good. I believe that Beast is good at some point. I believe that it's a game where you can really kind of get to grips with the ins and outs of it and 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 really just find something there that is worthwhile and rewarding. But I think to get to that point, you do have to slog a lot and figure out figure out what's good, what's bad. What would help with that is a rule book that not only explains the rules, <laughs> but also like some strategy tips, you know, like ideas about... There is a little bit of strategy tips at I, the back of the rule book. I mean, minimal, yes. Mm-hmm. I saw I saw the strategy. I know you've read the rule book. Mm. I, I read the rule book when it was on Kickstarter. And I know in the previous episode, I made some comments about the rule book needing a lot of work. I would still make comments saying that the rule book needs a lot of work. It's not bad. It's understandable. But it's one of those rule books where you read it and you go, oh, okay, I think I know how to play this. And then you try and play it and you go, oh, there's a lot of nuance here that I didn't realize exists that the rule book doesn't explain. For example, it says, hey, so, okay, your turn comes, you can play two cards, they have to be two different cards, and then you do the actions. 
And and that's how vague that is, because it doesn't say, for example, you must commit two cards first and then execute those actions, you know, after you've committed the cards. That's not the case. You can play one card, do the actions, see if that revealed where the beast is, or if you found one of the tokens on the map that says that the beast passed through here, and then you can play a second card you know, kind of informed by the decisions you discovered. And that feels natural to play, and you could intuit that that's how you but should play be, it. it would have been nice to have had that um, explained well. Exactly. Or, you know, indexes. Those would be good oh. in a rulebook, especially in a game where you need to look up so many concepts and, you know, reassure yourself, oh, yes, that's how it works. Because another thing that's, I think, very important for hidden movement games is very precise rulebooks, because... These are the sort of games where you want to know exactly how something works, because when you ask a rules question, you might give away information. So, I don't know, I feel like I feel like Beast is very much geared towards people who will enjoy Beast for a long time and replay it and, you know, find joy in exploring the same game. I just think the problem with it is that the initial games can feel like a bit of a slog and when you're coming to grips with it you might start to realize that it's not so much about the hidden movement it, it, it's more about the decisions you make in between yeah i think you're right um and if you've played hidden movement games before you maybe that's a bias that you have though like if you've mm. played hidden movement games do you think okay well this is how it kind of works and it's not how it works in this in this example yeah um like the summons for example they do a lot more work than the beast themselves does mm. and they are they are very important and it, but in fact in both our games the beast did less work than the summons and we both won our respective games by working those summons well I think. I think so. I'd agree with that as well. And uh, there's also a lot of combinatorial abilities that the beasts have that you kind of really have to suss out how they like work together. There's some really cool combos you got as Fengrier. Yes, to like, do with sheep. Yeah, you kill a sheep and suddenly you just go off, right? Like, <laughs> whoa, this is amazing. You know, you I didn't realize you could do that. And and that that was really cool. But at the same time with uh, Hogbad, I found myself going, okay, I can see how these abilities combine, but it's a trudge to execute yeah. them and a trudge to kind of like make them go off. And oftentimes I found myself seeing a lot of cool stuff, but not getting to engage with it as much as I wanted. And that's like an experiential complaint that I have. It's not like the, the game is bad or that the game is good. It's more like I want more out of this game that is less rote. Yeah, I think when I was playing the Hunters, um, I did get, and I, maybe it was a drafting issue, maybe, I don't know what it was, but I just couldn't get enough grudge tokens to do anything, to upgrade anything. And I found that a little bit frustrating. Uh, whereas as the beast, that wasn't a problem at all, because you kill a sheep, you get a grudge token, boom. Mm. And, you know, there's something conceptually about Beast that's very compelling. You know, the artwork is good. It's got this interesting motif of like, okay, it's hidden movement, but you have to reveal yourself, right, to achieve anything. And I know that some players really struggle with playing the Beast, right? Because that that moment of like, oh, I have to reveal where I'm going, but the whole thing is I'm hiding, right? Why would I, how, how do I win, right? I, and 
I think if you're struggling to make that transition, you know, it can be quite difficult. I didn't struggle to make that transition. I just struggled with the game that I found there, right? Uh, And I think the other thing, Elaine, is that um, every year there are like a couple of hidden movement games and they always get compared, a couple of new ones. So last year we had... I know it's not precisely last year, but they they sort of appeared in tandem and they were often compared. We had Sniper Elite and Mind Management. Out of the two, I prefer Mind Management much more. And and, and each time there's like this sort of spin, like Sniper Elite was, you know, traditional hidden movement, streamlined and perfected. Mind Management was all about deduction. It's all about if they went there and they went there and they went there and they went there, you know, where are they now? And this year we have Beast and City of the Great Machine. And we talked about City of the Great Machine on the previous bonus episode, but also if you're not a Patreon subscriber, that's our next video review too. And I think you'll see why we prefer City of the Great Machine over Beast, because they're both doing something different. They both have this sort of start-stop hidden movement where um, it's not about the big reveal at the end, it's more about these little reveal moments that get doled out through the game and kind of generate more of that where are you excitement. But whereas Beast for me, it's just more focused on its own mechanical trappings and sort of analyzing and perfecting them. City of the Great Machine is just big on experiences. It's big on saying there's so many different ways you can go about this. There are so many different possible strategy routes and they're all about playing your opponent. Whereas here, I felt Beast was more about playing myself rather than my opponents. Uh, and I think that's kind of more what I was looking, the, the new innovation in the genre that I am leaning towards. Just one more thing about Beast. Uh, we played Beast when it was on Kickstarter four-player, and now we played it twice two-player. Many people agree that Beast is best at free. So we never played it the ideal count, and I wanted to let people know that. But the other reason I mentioned City of the Great Machine is that now we're going to segue into a sub-segment <laughs> and leave Beast and do a sting. And we're going to talk about... Why don't you like hidden movement games, Elaine? Oh, because I'm an awful person. I I don't know. I I just get very very lost in them, unless so in I prefer. Oh, so I don't even know where I'm going with this. So okay, let me start that properly. Right. Okay. I just don't generally enjoy hidden movement games, and I hope that there are going to be games that come out that have hidden movement in them that I do enjoy and City of the Great Machine and Beast are two good examples like you said there's kind of an evolution happening where because what really frustrates me is when I lose the plot entirely when I'm the hunters or or Mm -hmm. something that's chasing the thing and I get lost uh, you said earlier, it's it's like a logic puzzle. It's like putting a jigsaw puzzle together. You just have to build up a picture in your head of where the thing has gone. But I feel like it's like a jigsaw puzzle that you've dropped on the floor, you've lost a piece under the sofa, the dog's eaten one of the pieces, and you just don't know what you're doing any longer. right? And that's the issue I have with hidden movement, that I just, I get lost. I tr- I'd start off all right. I think, okay, well, you've gone, you could have gone here, you could have gone here, you could have gone here. But then I, you know, you make one misstep in your brain and suddenly 
you have no clue. So so City of the Great Machine is not really hidden movement as such. So that helps with that beast. Does the beast does get revealed? So that helps with that. But I just do not like them. I just do not like that feeling of being lost at sea. <laughs> okay. Okay. So for the audience at home, Elaine is being way more polite about it than she was when we were not recording a podcast. Because I don't do swears in the podcast. <laughs> you had strong feelings about Hidden Movement games when we finished playing Beast, to the point where you said to me, why do we just play Hidden Movement games all the time? And I had to say to you, Elaine, we played two this year, that's it, right? <laughs> it uh, feels like that, because I, I don't enjoy the experience of them. And and I'm I'm like I said, I'm always hoping that there's going to be one that comes out that I really enjoy. And I, I think Beast is a good example of a hidden movement game but i just do not enjoy them i i I, they make me feel like i've done a job and now i want to play a board game to relax afterwards (laughs) it makes me feel tense it makes me like in a non-nice way not in a in a oh this is really tense and cool and like i'm going to achieve something or someone like i don't care if i win or lose in a in a board game normally i just enjoy you know the experience of the game Mm. right i'm one of those people but in a hidden movement game i don't care if i win or lose because i will not enjoy it any way wow okay so uh you said a couple of things to me in our off the podcast discussion about hidden movement games that i think were very interesting observations uh so one thing i said to you was that well i like hidden movement games uh because it feels like it's a competitive puzzle but we're both solving puzzles right they might be different puzzles on different sides of the aisle but at the end of the day we're both engaging in puzzle solving or you know all the people across the table it's like it's just that at the end of it we get to compare notes and because we've been solving different puzzles and say well that's how i solved my puzzle or didn't and that's how you solved your puzzle or didn't but you said to me and i thought this was very interesting right you compared the experience to almost like playing something like um you know Cards Against Humanity or Exploding Kittens, like genre of games that you personally don't enjoy. But I thought there was something apt in that analogy because you invoked Take That, right? And one of the elements of Take That is that you are deliberately messing up someone else's plans. It's confrontational, as in you're trying to do something I'm going to get in your way. And you said to me, I just must not like deduction games. And I said, but no, you really like Turing Machine. That's a deduction game. And that's yeah, because-, because it doesn't have that bluffing. It doesn't have that that subverting the idea of it, like it's a logic. It's a straight logic puzzle. It, it gives you information. It gives you parameters. Solve it via these parameters. Whereas a hidden movement game gives you parameters. Ah, but they might not be these at all. It, you know, you might have played a no movement card. You might have used some ability on a card that I don't know about that teleports you or what. I don't know. I just hate it. <laughs> oh wow! Okay. All right. You've you've you know you've done it now. You've opened the box of worms. Well, I. Okay, my my goal wasn't to open the box of worms. My goal was to... uh, I thought it was interesting because there is something peculiar about giving one person a puzzle and then saying to another person, your objective is to mess up this puzzle, right? And I think it's entirely valid for someone to really enjoy that and also entirely valid for someone to just not engage with that experience. And I think by talking about these things, we are validating everyone's enjoyment or non-enjoyment of a genre that's a nice way to put it and contextualizing it right 
so I really wanted to bring that out. And I know I brought out some negative feelings from you. I get that, right? But I thought, you know, I don't know. There's just something about learning why we like or don't like something helps us put it together in our brains why we or why we do or don't engage with them i don't like in life or in a board game trickery particularly uh so i don't like take that because that feels like a form of trickery to me Mm -hmm. I, i like a game that makes you feel clever or makes anyone around the table feel clever for building an engine doing a clever turn making clever plays doing smart things right mm. whereas a hidden movement for me feels like purposefully tricking people because you don't want to be found right mm. or you are, as the hunters or whatever you want to trick the beast player into thinking you're going to do something that you're not mm-hmm. and i don't like that feeling that comes with that i think that's interesting because i think one of the things that I've often found when analyzing social deduction games, like Blood on the Clock Tower, which you also, a lot of them you don't enjoy. I think you got on with Blood on the Clock Tower, didn't you? Yeah, because it was so big, had so many roles, and they were interesting roles. Mm -hmm. They weren't all about trickery. Yeah, and I, I thought it was a very weird example of a game where it's such a Marmite genre, and you might like it or hate it, right? And you're often made your mind up about it, right? You you probably know going in, I'm going to hate this, or I'm going to love this. And for some people, not everyone, far from everyone, Blood on the Clock Tower breaks that rule, right? I'm not saying that it does for most, because that, I think, would be just wrong and out there. But for some people, it does. And for me, it was an interesting exploration point, and that's what why we made like an hour-long video about it, right? And I haven't quite found that hidden movement game yet that does that that breaks that sort of motif of like i normally hate this i might like this i think city of the great machine actually gets closest to it because there is no puzzle you're not deducting anything you are reading tea leaves of the game state right Uh yeah yeah i suppose those games also have that element of tricking people they still do yeah um, they, uh, they still do all, all social deduction games yeah, the, yeah, yeah that's yeah, what yeah. i mean yeah mm. social deduction games and and maybe that's just a thing that i just don't enjoy in games mm. um I'm, i don't have a poker face i i i'm very bad at lying so it doesn't sit well with me you don't like auction games either right i think they have an element of trickery as well because there is that like how much did i bid are you gonna bid me are you gonna are you gonna well, that's it. I don't like being the first person. You don't like hidden auctions either. Right. Because, yeah. again, you're kind of the first, almost the first one to bid because you don't know what other people have done. Mm. So I like it when <laughs> you have inf- open information, mm. which you do in a lot of games, right? Mm. You do have a lot of open information. I don't like it when there is the hidden idea. I don't know. It's just something that doesn't gel with me. But I c- totally can understand why a lot of people do like this. It's a bit like musicals for me. I don't like musicals, like the films or whatever. But I can understand why people do. Right? It, it's just something that people like or people don't. Hey, I think it's cool that you don't like musicals. In fact, I think it's wicked. Hey! <laughs> um, so here's, here's my proposition, right? So we, we've, we've kind of dissected hidden movement, social deduction. I, I have touched on auctions, right? Now... 
I think we've covered Raw previously on the podcast, but you've never played it. And no. Raw just re-released again. It's not hidden auctions. Do you do you want to give next episode Raw a try? Uh, if we manage to get a group together for I it. I think that's sound. Yeah? All right. Let's put Raw in the roster of the next episode. We've had an email from Joseph, the title of which is Iron Brew in Florida. They say, found at my local bog box grocer in brackets Publix, here in Florida, USA, on the same shelf with English Heinz beans and Marmite. An indescribable flavour. Thanks for the tip. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> I feel like I should be contacted by the Iron Brew Council of Scotland and like given some money or something for this, for all this advertise free advertising. Okay, that's brilliant. I can't more succinctly describe Iron Brew than an indescribable flavour. That's, it's one way of putting it and it's not incorrect. I will say that. We also had some discussion about games in tubes on our Discord board. Go Cuckoo, Lacuna and Chicken. So my question to you all is, how do you feel about games with oddly shaped boxes? Does it annoy you because they don't fit on the shelf properly or do they intrigue you? Do you have a favourite game in an oddly shaped box? That's a great question. I can't wait to hear the correspondence on that. That's all the cardboard for now. Thank you so much for listening. On the next episode, we'll have Ra, Race for the Raft, Obsession, and hopefully, fingers crossed, an interview. I'm not going to say with who yet, because I only like to announce interviews when they're complete. This one's not yet, in case, you know, anything goes funny, wrong, scheduling issues, etc., etc., etc. But I'm excited to have people back on talking about cardboard. If you have any words of wisdom about any of those, please do let us know, Elaine no pun included, dot com. In the meantime, FK, if they want more pun-free fun, where can they find it? They can find it on our YouTube channel called No Pun Included, which is at youtube.com slash no pun included, where we do video reviews. That's our main thing. This is Talk Cardboard. It's also a thing, but it's not our main thing. We like it. It's very good. But the other ones also very good. So check that out if you haven't. Also, 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 more talk cardboard on our Patreon, patreon.com slash included, where you can subscribe. And each time there's a main episode, there's also a bonus episode just for patrons. There is an RSS feed, so you can have it on your podcast thing. It also has the main episode, so everything in one RSS feed. Uh, you know, always extra talk cardboard. We're going to talk about... First impressions of Lords of Ragnarok, the sequel to Lords of Hellas, and also Cosmoctopus, which is a game about an octopus in the cosmos. Lastly, what is the game of the episode? Easily Trailblazers. Easily. Uh, be, you know, interesting, but not quite there for me. I Love Chains was fine. Trailblazers, yeah, Pipeline the Third was just what I needed. And with that... Why don't you say goodbye to boards being replaced by playmats? Goodbye boards being replaced by playmats. Goodbye boards being replaced by playmats. <laughs>